Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Brent Palm, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's happening in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a check-in with the Minnesota milk producers, an update on the upcoming Governor's Deer opener, college hockey is underway, but first. It was a busy week in Minnesota politics with the election under three weeks away and candidates for governor facing off for the first time since FarmFest in a debate Tuesday night in Rochester. Eminence Bill Werner is suffering from a bad cold but insisted on joining us anyway. But at least radio transmissions don't transmit germs. I'll tell you, Tasha, it has not been the easiest week for me health-wise, but with the election nearly here, the show must go on. So everybody, please put up with my croaking, and hopefully things will be a little bit better next week. This week's debate was the only one on television and only one of two in the weeks prior to the election. Not surprisingly, abortion came up early on. Republican challenger Scott Jensen responded to Governor Tim Walz's allegations that Despite position switching, he still would try to ban abortion, as he, Jensen, originally said. It is not on the ballot in November. What is on the ballot in November is skyrocketing inflation, crime out of control, and our kids aren't getting the education that we think they need. As governor, I won't ban abortion. I can't. Walls responded, it's the governor who appoints Minnesota Supreme Court justices. We heard Supreme Court justices go in front of the United States Senate and claim that there was no way Roe versus Wade would change because it was settled law. Well... Fool us once. It's not going to happen here in Minnesota. Things got a little personal when Walls and Jensen were asked what they would do to stem the opioid epidemic. Walls said drug manufacturers didn't spread opioids on their own, accusing Jensen as a physician of issuing more prescriptions for them than a vast majority of his peers. He did that at the same time while accepting meals from the manufacturers and the pharmaceutical companies, whining and dining on expensive meals. I don't disagree with Tim Walls. Physicians and the healthcare system have contributed to the problems. But I think the important thing is going forward, we need to stop the supply of fentanyl. And I don't think Tim Walls has been an advocate of tightening up the southern border. Things heated up even more when the topic switched to public safety. Jensen saying crime that's sweeping over Minnesota started with Walls delaying law enforcement response during the 2020 riots sparked by the murder of George Floyd. He unleashed a poisonous spread of lawlessness. Arguably, he is the godfather of the crime epidemic that has swept our country. We have guns on the streets that were meant for war. We have the opportunity to do smart things, whether it be background checks or making sure we have red flag laws. These shootings are happening because lawbreakers are going to get the guns and they're not going to go through the system. The sharpest exchange of the evening came when Walls was asked what would he have done differently during the 2020 riots. He said sitting on the sidelines and critiquing is not what governor is. I'm proud of Minnesota's uh, response. I'm proud of Minnesota's first responders who were out there from firefighters to police to the National Guard to citizens that were out there. You heard it here. Governor Walls just told you, I am proud of Minnesota's response. Wow. I said I was proud of the first responders. You may not be, but I was. Jensen fired back the National Guard. Tim Walls didn't use them when they could have restored safety, security, and lawful behavior. He made some offhanded comment about a bunch of 19-year-old cooks. Walls shot back President Trump's Secretary of Defense. His assessment of this was is that Minnesota had to write the book on this. They had to build the plane while they're flying it. As the debate progressed, Jensen took aim at Walls about the effectively canceled Twin Metals copper nickel mine in northern Minnesota. Between Biden and Harris and Walls, they have absolutely squashed mining in northern Minnesota. It's killed their economy. Walls responded. A week and a half ago, I was uh, 
in Kiwatin with the uh, president of U.S. Steel and the steelworkers as we made the largest investment in uh, mining in northern Minnesota in decades at the Keytac mine. And what if a future presidential administration wants to reinstate the mineral leases for Twin Metals? Jensen said he absolutely would support it. Wall said, quote, we will follow the environmental impact statements. The Walls administration this week got flack from both sides after announcing $11 million in fines and other sanctions against Enbridge for water permit violations during construction of its Line 3 replacement pipeline. Winona LaDuke with Honor the Earth says Minnesota DNR and Pollution Control Agency, quote, consistently failed Minnesota's natural resources and indigenous treaty rights by allowing this dangerous project. Deputy Commissioner Barb Naramore responded, This was not... <laughs> the route that the Minnesota DNR would have preferred. Because, she says, it would be very challenging to build the pipeline without some impacts on water resources. But Naramore said, despite that, quote, we took our regulatory role very, very seriously. Meanwhile, House Republicans labeled the fines heavy-handed and a political ploy to shore up support among Twin Cities liberals three weeks before the election. Grand Rapids Representative Spencer Igo. The Line 3 project was one that was not embraced uh, in the greater metro in the Twin Cities. But you'll find up here, I mean, we love this project. Commissioner Katrina Kessler responded, the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency takes a completely nonpartisan approach. The case, she says, with line three. Through a very thorough process that produced very stringent permitting requirements, nonetheless, that allowed the project to go forward and be built. I go fired back if Governor Walls and Democrats had their way, the Line 3 replacement pipeline wouldn't have been built, and Minnesotans would be paying even more at the gas pump. And this week, amid calls for his resignation, U of M Board of Regents Vice Chair Steve Swigum, the former Speaker of the Minnesota House, unequivocally apologized for asking whether too much diversity factors into declining enrollment at the U of M's Morris campus. This from last week's board meeting, Swigum saying... I'm on thin ice, I understand that. I, but sure. at 71 years, or 72 years old, I say things that I would never have even thought when I was 52. <laughs> Swigum initially defended his inquiry, saying it was a question, not a comment, prompted by two letters from friends whose children, he says, would not be attending you, Morris, because they don't feel comfortable there. But this week, Swigum in a statement said he's truly sorry to those he offended, and his questions, quote, were not intended to cause harm, but my intent does not matter. And that is the week in politics, Tasha. And now I'm headed back to some <laughs> cough drops and chicken soup. Oh, I feel so bad, Bill. Tis the seasons of colds, blues, and hopefully not too much COVID. We'll be back right after this on Minnesota Matters. Minnesota's electric cooperatives are dedicated to advancing beneficial electrification initiatives such as load control programs and electric vehicle charging incentives. These efforts help homes and businesses run more efficiently while having a lower impact on the environment, creating a win-win-win for consumers, energy providers, and the state's economy. This message is supported by the Minnesota Rural Electric Association, bringing power to the people of rural Minnesota. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radal. This week, I visited with Lucas Schostrom, Executive Director of the Minnesota Milk Producers, to get an update, well, on all things dairy. wanted to visit with you today. We're highlighting the Minnesota Milk Producers Association. Can you tell us a little bit about your organization and some of the background? Like many uh, organizations, we're one of those voluntary organizations that uh, tells, takes notes from what our members' top issues are and uh, tries to make their business life better uh, at the Capitol. 
sometimes through regulatory and sometimes through just education uh, of ourselves. And so we work for uh, about 550 dairy farmer members statewide and uh, a large percentage of the milk statewide as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what some of your key issues over the past year have been and, and going forward into 2023? Well, I think the top issue is, is one that's probably really hard to solve, but we're working on it is labor, labor, and labor. Uh, those would be the top issues for, for our members. Um, and you might think, oh, people milking cows, and yes, that's true, and, and people feeding cows, and yes, that's true. But many of our dairy farms will use upwards of 20 to 40 vendors uh, throughout the year to make a dairy farm run. Of course, you need electricity, you need refrigeration, you need equipment, uh, you need tractors, and uh, everything in between. There's there's too much to list in this interview. So the, the uh, lack of labor not only affects us directly on the farm, but when we have service calls for all the various equipment dairy farmers need, uh, it really impacts us. Next would be kind of uncertainty in regulation, and uh, that's that's kind of an ongoing issue that uh, we keep talking about and, and keep uh, making progress on. Uh, there's good regulation, and then there's kind of just unnecessary burdensome uh, paperwork, and that's the stuff that, that we're most worried about, of course. And finally, uh, just probably because of those two issues, uh, finding new young people to get started. Uh, so anything we can do to help beginning farmers who are getting into the industry for the first time or uh, kind of bolster those who've just started in recent years uh, and, and making sure our programs work for them because we know they need to leg up. And for those of us who uh, have been in the industry for a while, they're our future. So whether it's uh, transitioning our farms to them or just new invigorating ideas, we want to make sure that those, those new farmers are uh, set up for success. You know, and that was going to be kind of leading into my next question. You know, oftentimes we see dairy farms kind of go from generation to generation and uh, different family members taking them over. Are we continuing to see that or is that becoming, I guess, less and less more common? Oh, I, I think that's the most normal way. And 99.9% and .9 of the time, that's how farms transition. Our capital costs in almost every walk of life have risen between real estate, concrete, wood, uh, what it just takes to put up a building and, and the regulation around it keep rising. And so that makes getting into a business like dairy farming uh, a, a million-dollar business to get started. Really, if you want to make it a full-time job, it's probably going to be seven, several, excuse me, not seven, several million dollars to start from scratch. And so obviously most people don't just have that lying around. And it's also a, a full-time job where you're on call 24-7. You're in charge of these uh, animals' lives. So that passion is usually something you have to grow up with. Now, that being said, out of my nine board members, one of them uh, did come into the business from outside and, and worked for a long time and bought into a business. So uh, one out of nine shows you there's definitely uh, uh, options there. But that person you know, worked on dairy farms for a long time and developed a passion and uh, created kind of a, a contract for deed situation to slowly uh, buy out a, a senior partner. So there are options, but yes, family is, is the way to transition it the vast majority of the time. And the high inflation and supply chain issues, is that causing you problems? Well, of course. I, I, I don't think uh, inflation and, and supply chain has uh, not touched any industry, and dairy is not uh, any different. But uh, we've seen actually probably the reverse effect. Dairy is a really good buy. We've had the least amount of inflation in dairy products in the past 20 to 30 years. And so now all of a sudden dairy inflation in the store is catching up. And so I know consumers are wondering about these eye-popping dairy prices, but uh, dairy, especially fluid milk, is often used as a loss leader. So uh, there's been sales of, of dollar and $2 per gallon milk uh, in the 1980s, and there's been sales of dollar and $2 and, and $3 milk in, in this 
decade, and uh, we've been kind of slow to inflate that price since it is a loss leader at the grocery store. But uh, they've only been able to hang on so long and, and for so far, and now it seems like those prices are really popping up. So uh, it, it may be a way for the dairy farmer to get paid a little more. Unfortunately, for our consumers, it's maybe a, a more noticeable rise, but uh, we're actually finally catching up to a lot of our friends in the food business uh, because we're used as a loss leader. So on the farm, however, we do see it. Uh, prices of, of everything we need to run the farm, of course, diesel fuel being one of those, uh, and a derivative of, of diesel fuel being a lot of our products uh, is, is popping up, and that really does impact farm profitability as well as labor, our number one cost. So, Lucas, uh, I guess those are some of the key questions I had today. Was there anything else you wanted to add? Well, I just want to uh, remind Minnesotans listening to this, we've got dairy farms in almost every county across the state. Uh, there is dairy in some way, shape, or form in every part of the state. And uh, even if you don't live near a dairy farm, uh, the processing sector in the Twin Cities is, is quite vibrant, as well as out in rural Minnesota. So we are we are a major industry in Minnesota. Milk is imported from, from Wisconsin and, and imported from other surrounding states to be processed here. And our milk is exported to other states and, and countries around the world as cheese and whey protein powder. And uh, we are a, a pretty significant impact on the state of Minnesota and significant impact worldwide. We have about a $9 billion, with a B, dollar impact, like nine U.S. Bank Stadium construction bills uh, every single year in the state of Minnesota as the dairy industry. Thanks again to my guest, Lucas Schostrom, Executive Director of the Minnesota Milk Producers. Minnesota Matters is back right after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radal. The firearms deer season is just two weeks away and one of the big events is the 2022 Minnesota Governor's Deer Hunting Opener. Minnesota Deer Hunters Association President Dennis Korberg of Wyndham is involved in the planning and gives MN's Brent Palm an update on this week's Minnesota Matters. Welcome to the show, Dennis. Well, thanks. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, we all know the firearms deer season is just over two weeks away. I know that planning is underway for the 2022 Minnesota Governor's Deer Hunting Opener, and you're involved. Dennis, tell us a little about uh, the specifics on this year's event. Well, this year's event actually come come out pretty quick. Uh, they didn't really start uh, planning this till I don't know, probably two weeks ago, and, and uh, DNR and tourism selected the Three Rivers Park because it is close. It's the first time that it has been in the metro area. And where else can we uh, celebrate the, the deer hunting season other than in the area of the state where we have the, the highest population? I think I told you I live pretty close to the Elm Creek Park Reserve, and I'm guessing uh, with 4,900 acres out there, plenty of good spots to hunt? Uh, yes, uh, that, is a, that is a draw hunt. Uh, you have to apply for it, and then it is a lottery type thing. They have 125 hunters coming in for the opener on Saturday, November 5th, and uh, I'm, I don't know what their history is for success rate, but if it uh, matches a, you know, a good share of the state, they should be in that 30 plus percent uh, success rate. So a uh, good opportunity for people that uh, are in the metro not having to travel a long distance to participate in the sport. Okay. I'm guessing Governor Tim Walls and some dignitaries will be there along with those 125 hunters? Yes, that is correct. When when we are in a, an election year, everything can change with a drop of a pin. But uh, he has committed to to be there on, on November 5th and participate in the hunt and give some interviews after after he comes back out of the field. 
I remember uh, I was at the Fergus Falls, which was the last opener we had, and uh, he was out hunting and spent some time in the field, and he actually hunted morning and afternoon uh, up there. So You mentioned it's an election year, but I think uh, here in Minnesota, there's probably nothing more bipartisan than hunting and fishing. <laughs> exactly. You know, I, I always said, I don't, I don't know that a deer knows the difference between a Republican and a Democrat. <laughs> well, we've been doing this for quite a while. I remember interviewing Mark Dayton at least a decade ago. How long has Minnesota been doing governor's deer hunting openers? Well, I think this is our 20th year. Now, I don't know if this is the 20th event or if it's the 18th event due to the fact that we didn't have anything for the last two years because of COVID. So, But it has been around a long time. I think Governor Plenty was the one that started the first event. And like you said, this was kind of maybe some last-minute planning that landed at Three Rivers Park District. The last couple of years, because of COVID, we haven't had large gatherings. That is absolutely correct. And and so this is kind of a, a work back into it. Uh, you know, one never knows what next year is going to bring, but... Uh, you know, it is an event that uh, it does celebrate probably one of the most participated sports that we have in the state. How many folks deer hunt in the state of Minnesota? Well, that's a that's a touchy a touchy thing because they really don't tell us how many hunters. So there's an assumption, but there is over. They, they do tell us that there are over four hundred thousand tags or licenses sold. So, I mean, one hunter actually can buy three different licenses. So it, it's kind of an odd, odd type of thing. But, you know, I mean, we have been hunting and we have been been having hunters out there hunting for almost ever. And I can't tell you when the first hunting season was, but it was a long time ago, way before me. So the number that is very commonly put out is in that 400 to 450,000 hunters. Economic development officials would say that must be a big business here in the state of Minnesota. It is. And and they haven't released any numbers uh, lately, but you know, I have heard that the, the total aspect for that is close to $2 billion worth of revenue to the state of Minnesota. Wow, and that goes that goes into everything. You know, I, I can remember I can remember seeing a, a uh, field and stream article where they talked about uh, how much money is spent on deer hunting, and if you put that back into a factor of how much each pound of venison uh, costs, uh, I recall that it being somewhere between two hundred and fifty to two hundred and seventy-five dollars per pound. But <laughs> that took into consideration, you know, people going out and buying a a uh, motel room for two or three nights and eating our meals in restaurants and, you know, travel. And you, know, you can make numbers appear any way you want. I still truly believe that the majority of people hunt for the sport of hunting, the fact of being with family and friends, doing something afield out in Mother Nature's gift to us. Hey, and from what I hear, or at least some of the DNR forecasts, a lot of good opportunities for harvest this fall. A lot of the permit areas have increased. They have either have a bonus tag or they have changed to where you can take two deer. Some areas have three deer. Here in the metro, their harvest there is unlimited. You can buy as many tags as you want. I'm a bow hunter, so I've been out uh, half a dozen times right now. And, you know, down here, I have plenty of deer. I, I see deer every time I go out and and uh, it's a good good population. My herd that I hunt, and I only hunt a very small area, I hunt 40 acres, and my population is as high as it has been in the last 10 years. The forecast sounds good for the firearms deer hunting season, now just 
about two weeks away. Hey, thanks again uh, to Dennis Korberg, president of the Minnesota Deer Hunters Association, for joining us on this week's Minnesota Matters. Hey, good luck out there in the fields uh, over here in Elm Creek in two weeks, Dennis. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks, Brent. Minnesota Matters returns right after this. Thousands of families affected by Hurricane Ian urgently need support. Your donation can help the American Red Cross provide meals, shelter, and hope to these families. Please donate today. Go to redcross.org or call 1-800-RED-CROSS to donate to those affected by Hurricane Ian. Your support is critical. We can't do it without you. Redcross.org or call 1-800-RED-CROSS today. Year over year, the amount of drug overdose deaths in Minnesota is increasing. The rising number is driven by synthetic opioids like fentanyl and other drugs like methamphetamine and cocaine. If someone is overdosing, call 911. If you or someone you know needs help with substance abuse, talk to a healthcare provider. Learn more about what to do in case of a drug overdose from the Minnesota Academy of PAs at minnesotapa.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radal. The college hockey season is underway and the state of Minnesota has all kinds of great teams. The Gopher men's team is ranked number one in the country while Minnesota State Mankato is ranked second. St. Cloud State is rated eighth and Minnesota Duluth is tenth. Bemidji State is receiving both. In women's hockey, Minnesota is number two and Minnesota Duluth is fifth. Golden Gopher women's head coach Brad Frost is excited about his team and spoke with MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm. Frost says he hopes there will be continued growth nationally in women's college hockey. I would hope so, but I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, right? I, you, you think of in the Big Ten alone, Michigan, Michigan State, you know, everybody's been waiting for, for a couple decades for them to, to get going. And, uh, and let's be frank, you know, women's hockey isn't, isn't making money. Um, and so it costs a lot of money to start a, a women's hockey program. Uh, just like most programs, you know, 18 scholarships and, and the travel and the equipment and hockey sticks aren't cheap these days. And, um, and so uh, it would be great if more programs would start up, but there really has to be a financial commitment from, from universities to do that. While, you know, the Big Ten schools in particular are getting a lot of money from that TV contract, I'm sure everybody has uh, their own Places that, that those uh, that that those dollars are going to go yeah. to, you know, with our for us with the athletes' village from the the COVID loan to, um, you know, now the the Alston or Champions for Life money uh, that student athletes can receive. So, I, I think the the college landscape is changing at an incredible rate, and we're, we've already seen that over the last few years. And it's going to be really interesting to see where it is in, in in a few more. In the back of your mind, do you have a fear that it could that it that it could potentially shrink too because the you know the cost of other stuff uh, continues to rise. That that's certainly a concern, and and I think you know with this with this Champions for Life money as well, um, you know some schools are are able to afford it, others are not. That's why I really like actually name, image, and likeness because it's not. It's not coming from the athletic department's budgets. Um, if players and, and athletes want to receive more money and and uh, you know put the work into to do that, then then they can. And uh, you know we have some players that are very involved in it, and and others that are like I'm I'm good. Um, yeah. And, and so it, it 
at least provides an opportunity for those who want it. Yeah, I was wondering how successful or how many of, of the players on your team maybe have a chance, whether it's a, a big number or a, a small number, uh, that they can maybe take advantage of it. Because hockey, you know, you're in the epicenter of where hockey is pretty popular. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, most of them are doing small little things with restaurants here in Dinkytown or whatever yeah. so that they can receive a, a free, you know, five free lunches yeah. or something or, or whatever. And, you know, I see them posting all the time and, and, uh, and ask them about it, but you know, nobody's bringing in a, a lot of money like Paige Beckers or, yeah. you know, Gable yeah. Stevenson or some of those, yeah. uh, yeah. athletes, but, uh, uh, but there's opportunities there for them and if they want to take them. And, and I think that's a good thing. You have St. Cloud state this weekend. Um, you mentioned it's a, let's see, it's a road game Friday and then, uh, the home game with all of the uh, festivities. Uh, what do the Huskies bring to the ice? What are you looking for from them this weekend? Yeah. New coach, Brian Adolski, if, uh, uh, the hockey people will know that name. He was uh, up at North Dakota and, and turned that program around before they folded their program, unfortunately. In the meantime, he's been coaching in China. He was Nora Ratu's coach uh, uh, playing over in, in, in China and, and in Russia a little bit. And, and then he was most recently the, the Chinese uh, Olympic coach. And now is back in the WCHA and somebody that knows our, uh, knows our league very well. And, uh, and, and is a great hockey coach. He also just hired Mira Yeloshua, our former, uh, uh, Finnish defenseman who's been at Stillwater high school for a number of years. And, and so they, uh, they're, they're a very passionate team. They play extremely hard. Uh, they've got great goaltending. They have a couple, uh, European players who are, who are pretty special last week. They, they lost handily, uh, to, uh, uh, to Wisconsin night one, five, nothing. And then the next night, they uh, were up two nothing in, in the second period, two one with with uh, a minute to go, and Wisconsin tied it up and then beat them in overtime. So, you look at our league, and you know, uh, in particular the second the second game uh, adjustments are made. Um, and there's no surprises, and and those games are usually extremely tight, and and so they're uh, they're a team to to watch for. They continue to get better here under under him, and and I think they will uh, over the next couple of years as well. And then Saturday, what's the agenda look like for folks that want to come and watch, and and uh, the different things that that will all be going on? Yeah, we're looking to have a ceremonial puck drop on on Saturday again. It's uh, our, our 25 year uh, anniversary celebration, and and then in between periods, we'll honor the the 2012 uh, team and and 2013. Uh, championship teams as well. So it's uh, just a great opportunity to come out and see some uh, some alumni maybe that you kind of grew up watching or, or were cheering for, and um, a lot of players are coming back, so it should be really neat. I think fans, too, are maybe more comfortable now coming out, hopefully. It's a tough time of year, right, because right. there's so much going on. you got football, um, hockey starts so early. You guys have the longest season in the history of organized <laughs> sports, I think. Um, but that said, um, hopefully people are now a little more comfortable, right, coming out to a crowd and just getting back out and cheering and, and, and can get back to uh, to getting really good crowds at, at Ritter, right? Yeah, we would love that. I mean, you know, October – we usually struggle with uh, with crowd size just because people aren't thinking hockey mm-hmm. uh, necessarily. Yeah. But uh, you know, obviously, a big weekend for the men coming up with North Dakota, and a big weekend for us. And you know, we've scheduled our games uh, so that uh, fans can come and, and go to both. And, great, and so, right? yeah. um, you know, two o'clock on Saturday, we'd love to love to fill Ritter. And again, I, I still think it's one of the best products in town for, for seven, eight bucks or five bucks if you're uh, bringing a child. And, and so, um, we need, uh, these players deserve to be seen. Um, and like I said, it's, it's probably one of the best teams that we've ever had. That's Gopher women's hockey coach Brad Frost with MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm. The Gophers will honor their 2012 and 2013 national championship teams on Saturday.
That's going to do it for this week's Minnesota Matters. Be sure to join us next week on this MNN affiliate station. Same time, same place. From all of us here at MNN, have a great week. Be safe.